0: Welcome to Adventures in Jewish Studies, the podcast of the Association for Jewish Studies. In every episode, we take you on an entertaining and intellectual journey about Jewish life, history, and culture with the help of some of the world's leading Jewish studies scholars. I'm your host, Jeremy Shear. So we're going to do something a little different to begin this episode. We're going to do a pop quiz. Ready? Ready? name at least five Jewish languages. That's five Jewish languages. And while you're pondering, here's a little classic game show music. And pencils down. Okay, so what did you come up with? Now you probably got Hebrew and Yiddish, and maybe Ladino? But after that, it it gets really hard, right? I mean, before doing research for this episode, if I'd been asked to name any more than three Jewish languages, I probably would have drawn a blank. I mean, how many Jewish languages are there? Well, as it turns out, a lot
1: more than you'd think. Judeo-Arabic, Judeo-Provencal, Judeo-French. This is
0: Sarah Ben-Or, a professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles.
1: Judeo-Aramaic, Jewish Neo-Aramaic, Judeo-Berber.
0: Those are only a few of the more than 20 languages Ben Orr lists on her website, jewishlanguages.org. There's also Hakatia, Jewish Malayalam, Jewish Aramaic, Judeo-Persian, Jewish Swedish, even Jewish English. Now, you may be thinking, hold on a sec. Can you simply stick the word Jewish or Judeo in front of a language and call it a Jewish language? Is Jewish Swedish a Jewish language in the same way that Hebrew or Yiddish are Jewish languages? According to Ben Or, it depends.
1: If you're thinking of a Jewish language as only something that is distinct enough from the language of their non-Jewish neighbors to be uh mutually unintelligible, that the, the Jews and the non-Jews can't understand each other, then perhaps we would say that Yiddish is a Jewish language because it was spoken in a territory where Polish or Ukrainian or Belarusian was spoken.
0: But most Jewish communities around the world have spoken languages that are more similar to the languages their non-Jewish neighbors speak.
1: Such as Judeo-Greek and Greek and Judeo-Italian and Italian, Judeo-Arabic and Arabic. Each of these has differences from the non-Jewish language spoken around them.
0: Especially Hebrew words and differences in pronunciation, intonation, and syntax.
1: But the question of whether it's a separate language or not is really one of extent rather than kind.
0: So what makes a language a Jewish language really depends on how you define the concept of language itself. Maybe it's more accurate to think of some Jewish languages as more like dialects or variants. It's an ongoing discussion among Jewish language scholars and we'll return to it later in the episode. For now, it's worth considering why this stuff matters. Why should we care about how what we're calling Jewish languages evolved throughout the diaspora? As you'll hear from Ben or and other scholars, studying Jewish languages reveals a lot about how diaspora Jewish communities functioned as both distinctly Jewish and as part of the societies among whom they lived. In this episode, we're going to look at three Jewish languages, Judeo-Tat, Judeo-Tajik, and Jewish English and explore their history, their legacy, and what they mean and have meant for the Jews who speak them. According to legend, the so-called mountain Jews of Azerbaijan and the Russian Republic of Dagestan have ancient, even biblical roots. So one
2: of the traditions claims that the mountain Jews are actually the descendants of the ten tribes exiled from the kingdom of Israel and settled in Media in uh, 722
0: before Christ. This is Vitali Shalem. He was born and raised in the Eastern Caucasus and is a scholar of Judeo-Tat, the traditional language of the Jews of that region. He says that the historical, cultural, and linguistic evidence suggests that the mountain Jews probably came originally from Jewish communities in Persia, or modern-day Iran. And at some point in its history, it relocated to the Caucasus,
2: and it was isolated in a way, not completely isolated, and then it developed as a separate community.
0: And as the community developed, it began to evolve a Jewish version of the local language, called Tat, which is a dialect of Persian. Here's an example of what Judeo-Tat sounds like in the form of a folk song. Until the early 20th century, songs and poems composed in Judeo-Tat were not written down. But Judeotat did give rise to a rich oral tradition. One of the genres genre
2: was ma'ani, songs. And the songs could be very different, going from the love poetry, you know, love songs, and to lullabies performed by women.
0: The richest subgenre, Shalom says, was wedding poetry.
2: There is a wide range of wedding songs, humoristic, serious, uh, sad even, because, you know, the, the bride leaves the father's house, and then the songs can actually describe this how hard it is for her to go to a different family and so on
0: judeo tat culture also developed a vibrant folklore with stories about heroes magical animals and everyday people
2: for example the everyday tales
0: were about a guy whose name was Shemidar bendy who was kind of like the mountain jewish version of the shlemiel in yiddish folklore and there were also stories about biblical figures. Samson, Shumshune, Joseph,
2: Yusuf Isadih, King Solomon, Melich, Moses Mishirabinu.
0: The first books written in Judeo-Tat were published during the first decade of the twentieth century. One was a translation of a book about Zionism, originally written in Russian by the Zionist leader and writer Yosef Sapir. The first literary works published in Judeo-Tat were plays performed by amateur theater groups. And Judeo-Tat newspapers that began to appear during the beginning of the Soviet era in the early 1920s published some modern Judeo-Tat poetry.
2: Very often, the subjects of the poems were about politics, you know, about things that are related to
0: politics and socio economic life and things like that, not necessarily love poetry. After a lull from 1940 until the early 1960s, Judeo-Tat literature had its last significant creative period.
2: Maybe Sergei Skyaev is the one who is worth mentioning because, in my opinion, he wrote uh, the most beautiful love poetry in, in Judeo-Tat, and he he also participated
0: uh, in the
2: World War II, and many poems actually about this experience.
0: But Judeo-Tat had been declining as an everyday language since the rise of the Soviet regime in the 1920s. Russian became the official language of the region, which discouraged the use of other languages, including Judeo-Tat.
2: To speak Russian without an accent was seen as a very strong advantage. That's why I think that many parents actually preferred that their children don't speak Judeo-Tat and they don't learn Judeo-Tat so that the Russian that they learn is better and cleaner and sounds more native.
0: By the 1950s, most mountain Jews were already bilingual and spoke Judeo-Tat as a second language or as a sort of code when they didn't want their kids to understand what they were saying. Shalem experienced this firsthand growing up in the region.
2: My parents, they never spoke Judeo-Tat to me. It was their secret language
0: instead he learned the language from his grandmother
2: and when i spent some time with her uh, when i was around seven or eight years old something like one or two months and then i came back home all of a sudden the secret language was not secret anymore right i could understand already what my parents were talking
0: about some families did make a point of speaking judeo tat to their kids in a conscious effort to preserve the language But outside the home, the vocabulary just wasn't broad enough or modern enough to compete with other languages. Once, you know, you go out and you have to speak about
2: subjects uh, that are not just everyday life, something more complicated than just, you know, householding or basic things, and then you don't have enough words, you don't have enough capability of this language, that can actually serve you when you talk about these subjects.
0: And so mountain Jews naturally turn to Russian and Azerbaijani. Today, there's only one Jewish settlement called Kessaba in the outskirts of the city of Kuba in northeastern Azerbaijan, where Judeo-Tat is spoken as an everyday language. The settlement dates back to the 18th century.
2: It doesn't have uh, very many people left there, I think, but still several thousands, like three, four thousands, and in this settlement, people still speak Judeo-tat on a daily basis for in an everyday you know life, and the children still learn
0: from uh, their parents. But the population of Kesebe is declining, all but guaranteeing that the transmission of Judeo-tat will decline too. Judeo-Tat is designated as an endangered language, and the Judeo-tat literary tradition has mostly petered out. Jewish writers from Azerbaijan now write mostly in Russian, Azerbaijani, or Hebrew. Some mountain Jews, or their descendants, who now live in Brooklyn, Moscow, and other places, have made efforts to keep Judeo-Tat going by organizing language classes and compiling dictionaries, the best of which, according to Shalem, was published in 2010. For Shalem, who works full-time in high-tech and does scholarship in his free time, judeo tat and its history are both intellectually fascinating and personally meaningful.
2: There are a lot of feelings of nostalgia amongst semi-speakers like me and other people because the language still serves as an identity tool. You know, it's part of our identity. So very often, you know, you just meet somebody and a couple of words said in that language just introduce you and make you part of that person's life, because you belong to the same community.
0: In 1890, Rabbi Shimon Chacham, a Bukharan Jew from Central Asia, immigrated to Jerusalem. He was part of a movement of Central Asian Jews who, like Jews from other regions of the diaspora, wanted to establish a presence in Palestine.
3: And the Jews from Central Asia had this idea to build this this residential quarter there with their own institutions, with schools there, with orphanages there, with yeshivas there
0: this is cultural anthropologist alana cooper the abba hillel silver chair in jewish studies at case western reserve university and she says that at the same time that some Bukharan jews were moving to palestine they also felt that they needed to be able to explain who they were and what it meant to be a Bukharan jew in modern terms and part of that project involved modernizing their language a jewish dialect of tajik which itself was a dialect of persian Here's a bit of how the language sounds in a Bukharan comedy video. We'll put a link to it on the podcast webpage. For centuries, stories and songs composed in the language had been passed down orally. And Hakam understood that modernizing the language meant standardizing its grammar and vocabulary in written form. And for Rabbi Chacham, a natural place to begin was with holy works written in Hebrew.
3: First and foremost is the Torah, the five books of the Torah, which he published in Hebrew letters in translation into their local Persian dialect.
0: Chacham also translated and published Shir Hashirim, the Song of Songs, a holiday prayer book, and a book to be used during Passover, which included the Haggadah and the laws of the holiday. Now, Chacham was not alone. According to Cooper, Jews from other parts of the diaspora were also in the early stages of publishing books translated into their native Jewish languages on both religious and secular subjects. Chacham himself translated and published a non-religious work, an 1853 novel written in Hebrew called The Love of Zion.
3: Because his move was at one and the same time about asserting a clear identity among his people, to place them among the Jewish people. But also, at the same time, he was very involved in a Zionist endeavor to rebuild the land and to return to the land.
0: The Bukharan Jews for whom Chacham was translating had ancient roots in Central Asia. They had lived in what are today Uzbekistan and Tajikistan, just north of Afghanistan and west of China, for a very long time. Historians aren't sure exactly how long, but Jewish settlement there might date back 2,000 years. As part of her research, Cooper traveled to the area to meet with and talk to Bukharan Jews.
3: Some people said to me, we've been here for 10 generations. Other people said to me, we've been here for 100 generations.
0: In other words, they had no memory of any other diaspora home. According to historians, the Jews there perhaps were among those who were exiled at the hands of the Babylonians in the 6th century BCE. And over the centuries, they built a distinct diasporic Jewish civilization, which included their own language. Bukharan Jewish culture remained more or less intact until the early 20th century, when the new Soviet state incorporated the entire area and instituted policies to systematize the language and culture of the various ethnic groups throughout the Soviet Union. But Central Asian Jews posed a problem.
3: Because they didn't know what to do with this population. The Jews in Central Asia did not speak Yiddish. It was clearly not their national language.
0: And so the Soviets were puzzled as to what the language of Bukharan Jews should be.
3: In the early to mid-1920s, there was a debate about whether or not it should be Hebrew or if it should be a Jewish version of the mother language that they spoke, which was this variant of Persian. In
0: 1926, the Soviet government published textbooks for children in this Jewish variant of Persian using the Hebrew alphabet. But by the end of the 1920s, the Soviet policy changed, forcing all of its Central Asian republics to switch to using the Latin alphabet. And by the 1940s, this experiment in Soviet social engineering was abandoned completely. The Soviets focused instead on assimilating the Bukharan Jews and their language.
3: So at that point, basically what the Soviets said was, we don't recognize you Jews as having your own independent national culture. You don't have a national language anymore. You just speak the language of the Tajik majority amongst whom you live.
0: The Soviet policy had severe consequences, not only for the future of Judeo-Tajik, but also for anyone who violated the policy by writing or teaching the language. Mordechai Bachayev was an important Bukharan Jewish poet and journalist during the 1920s and 30s when Judeo-Tajik was flowering. But by 1940, he'd become an enemy of the Soviet state and was thrown in prison, where he remained for several decades. In 1973, he immigrated to Israel and wrote a memoir in Judeo-Tajik titled In a Stone Sack. In his introduction to the book, Batchayev explained why he chose that title.
3: In Russian prisons, there was a special cell to punish prisoners. It was a very narrow place, too small to lie down, in it, there was a small, unremovable stool made of bricks or stone. It was part of the cell's floor. This cell resembled a sack built from bricks. The reason why I wrote that book was to show that in those years, not just a certain prison, but the whole Soviet Union was like a stone sack, and all inhabitants of the Soviet Union lived in in it as prisoners.
0: When Cooper visited Bukharan synagogues in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan in the early 1990s, she found evidence of how Soviet policies had driven Bukharan Jewish culture, including books published in judeo tajik underground.
3: In the synagogue, I would pull off a book that looked like a math book, or that looked like a science book, and then I would open it up, and from the inside, there were texts that had been written prior to the 1940s, but were in hiding.
0: By the 1990s, Bukharan Jews had begun to leave the Soviet Union in large numbers and immigrate to Israel and the United States. Before 1989, around 50,000 Jews lived in Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. By the end of the 1990s, only a few hundred remained. And inevitably, Bukharan Jewish language and culture declined.
3: There was a real nostalgia and sense of loss for what they had left behind, the culture that they had left behind.
0: Around the same time, there were some efforts to revive and preserve Bukharan Jewish culture. A handful of cookbooks were published in Judeo-Tajik in Israel and New York, and attempts were made to establish a Bukharan Jewish theater. But much like how Eastern European Jews who had immigrated to the United States during the early 20th century saw little point in passing on Yiddish to their children, Bukharian Jews who arrived in Israel and the U.S. in the 1990s had little incentive to speak judeo tajik with their
3: kids. And the reason why is Bukharian for those who were born in the United States or immigrated to the United States as children is the language of the old people. It's the language of the old country. It's the language of grandmothers. It's out of date. It's musty.
0: But that could change. After all, Yiddish was once considered musty and old-fashioned, but now it's made something of a comeback, if the many Yiddish language and culture courses at Jewish studies programs are any indication. Future generations of Jews with Bukharan ancestry may seek to reclaim their heritage. Some are already making that effort. In 2012, a 20-something Bukharan Jew in New York, Emmanuel Rybakov, published a textbook providing judeo tajik lessons in transliterated English. A reviewer in the Bukharan Times newspaper, published in Queens, praised the book in hope that it may help prevent Judeo-Tajik from going extinct. Here's how he put it.
3: If we, God forbid, cease to know our mother tongue, then we lose part of our heritage, our culture, and ourselves in the process. Would we still be Bukharian Jews without our language? I urge all the people in our community who want to learn the language to please get this book and save our beautiful, unique language.
0: Okay, so now I'm going to play you a little bit of the Jewish stand-up comic Elon Gold, doing a bit about why Jews are better off without Christmas trees. Here we go. I actually like Christmas. I love the music, the lights, the decorations. I love going to my friend's house. He has a beautiful Christmas tree. But I do not have Christmas tree envy. I don't. Who wants to schlep a tree from the woods or even a store and, like, tie it to the roof of your car and bring it into the house with the
3: schmutz? I don't need that.
0: Now, you got all of that, right? I mean, even though Gold used a couple of Yiddish words, schlap and schmutz, you obviously understood what he was saying. But now, listen to this clip from a lecture that Sarah Benor, who we heard from earlier in the podcast, gave in 2018.
1: I heard this from a Chabad young man in Northern California. Whenever you're shaykh, then you can be an aide. Whenever you're not, you're not. So, why does Rashi say? That's because Dina Dimachus It's because they're even if not Dina Dimachus Rashi says later, because Al Din ni The Gayam are Sheikh to Dinim, they're not Sheikh to Gitin, that's why it's good.
0: How much of that did you understand? Unless you've learned at a yeshiva, probably not much, right? And that's why the audience is laughing, because even though what you and they are hearing is ostensibly English, The mix of Hebrew and Yiddish and Aramaic phrases, plus the chanting cadence, make it nearly unintelligible, which prompts Benor to pose a question.
1: Is that English?
0: Well, is it? For Benor, the answer is kind of, but more accurately, both clips you've just heard are what Benor calls Jewish English.
1: Well, Jewish English is the way that Jews speak English. And it could be as similar to the language of their non-Jewish neighbors as possible, except perhaps with the use of one or two Hebrew or Yiddish words.
0: Like the comedy bit.
1: Or it could be so different that it's very hard to understand and need subtitles in a movie.
0: Like the other clip. Now, you may be asking yourself, does using words like schmutz or schlep in an otherwise perfectly normal English sentence render it a Jewish language in the same way that, say, Hebrew is a Jewish language? And the answer is no, of course not. But it is similar to speaking Judeo-Tajik and actually most of the other Jewish languages ben Orr mentioned earlier. Because like Jewish English, the extent to which those languages or dialects or whatever you want to call them constitute something distinctly Jewish is, as ben Orr said earlier, a matter of degree. Here's another example.
1: You might say um, the Gabai wants to know who's Hagba and Galila.
0: Which means in plain English that the person organizing a synagogue service wants to know who's lifting and dressing the Torah scroll.
1: And that sentence is something you would hear in a uh, synagogue or a Minyan. And if you've
0: spent much time in a synagogue, you probably understand that sentence. But if you haven't, then the sentence is probably as mysterious as if it had been uttered in Greek or Chinese. And now this phenomenon isn't peculiar to Jewish English. Depending on where you are and who you're talking to, varieties of, say, African-American vernacular or Appalachian English, and even Southern California surfer dialect may sound kind of like foreign languages. Plus, Jews in other English-speaking countries have evolved their own Jewish English dialects. In South Africa, for example, the word kugel does refer to a casserole made with eggs and noodles and other ingredients.
1: But is also used as the South African equivalent of Jap, Jewish American princess. Oh, she's such a kugel.
0: Another example is the word yok.
1: Used in England and South Africa, I think, to refer to a non-Jew.
0: And especially to a rowdy non-Jewish hooligan. It may come from Yiddish.
1: But some people think that it's from the word goy, said backwards, and so then it becomes yog, and then it gets devoiced to yok.
0: Jewish English can manifest in more subtle ways, too. In a survey of non-New Yorkers, Benor found that Jews were more likely than non-Jews to use New York Jewish inflections and phrases in their speech. Things like saying horrible instead of horrible, or standing online instead of standing in line. And another distinctly Jewish feature is a sort of click sound that comes from modern Hebrew.
1: Which might be hard to hear on a a podcast, but uh, here it goes. We were walking around and it doesn't matter. Do you hear that click?
0: Now, part of what's so interesting about Jewish English is that it exists at all. Because for most early 20th century Jewish immigrants and their children, speaking Yiddish or talking Jewish was seen as an impediment to assimilation and success. But because many third-generation American Jews feel secure in their identity as Americans, some make a point of maintaining a distinctive Jewish identity, which includes how they talk.
1: So I think the history of Jewish English is one of both assimilation to American society and distinctiveness, both intentional and not, through the use of Yiddish and Hebrew and other distinctive features.
3: to make live another day.
0: So I have something to confess. When we first discussed doing an episode about Jewish languages, my associate producer, Jen Richler, and I were a little skeptical. I mean, beyond Yiddish and maybe Ladino, how much was there really to say about a bunch of languages and dialects that most people had never heard of? But we were wrong. We didn't know what we didn't know. And so I'm really glad that we pressed on. In fact, to use a little Jewish English, it would have been a real shamda not to. Because as I hope you've learned from this episode, and as we've certainly learned from putting it together, Yiddish and Hebrew are only the tip of the proverbial Jewish language iceberg. And in this episode, we've only really scratched the surface. The long list of other Jewish languages and dialects, including Hekatia, Jewish Russian, Judeo-Georgian, Judeo-Portuguese, Judeo Provençal, Jewish Malayalam, and many more, represent not only linguistic traditions, but entire Jewish cultures that date back, in some cases, to antiquity. In Jewish studies, and in the Jewish world generally, the intense focus on Eastern European Jewish civilization and its destruction and the rebirth of Hebrew in the modern Jewish state can sometimes obscure the richness of the broader Jewish diaspora. Exploring a wider range of Jewish languages and dialects, many of which are endangered, is a great way to begin to sample that richness. Fortunately, scholars such as Shalem, Cooper, Benor, and others have focused their efforts on studying these languages and capturing their histories and the cultures they give voice to. And a handful of organizations, including the Endangered Language Alliance in New York and Mother Tongue in Israel, record people who speak a variety of Jewish languages. Benor's website, JewishLanguages.org, is also a great way to begin exploring. We'll put links to those resources on the podcast website. And now we could think of no better way to end this episode than to leave you with a little sampling of some of these Jewish languages in all their beauty. <laughs>
3: I believe Malayana is <laughs> going to be going to be a
0: Adventures in Jewish Studies is made possible with generous support from the Salo W. and Jeanette M. Barone Foundation. The executive producer of Adventures in Jewish Studies is Warren Hoffman. The Association for Jewish Studies is the world's largest Jewish studies membership organization, featuring an annual conference, publications, fellowships, and much more for our members, as well as public programming. Visit associationforjewishstudies.org for more information about what we do, to learn about joining if you're a Jewish Studies scholar, or to find out how to bring a Jewish Studies scholar to your community.
3: Until next time, I'm Jeremy Shear. Thanks for listening.